The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to today's episode. We're going to be talking about no new drilling in the ocean and clean energy and green jobs, as well as the need for a national ocean policy. And my guest today is Mike Dunmire, who's with Ocean Champions. And Mike is located right in, he works right in Washington, so he's able to uh, keep his thumb on the pulse of the nation politically. Mike, how are you? Doing well, Rob. Thanks very much. So all the news is about the disaster in uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and it just appalls me that they're still talking about an oil spill, like it's a teacup that's gone over. What are you hearing about all that? Well, it's uh, it's very interesting to see how, as this event moves on, as this tragedy continues, uh, opinions are, are shifting and, and rhetoric is shifting a bit, too. I mean, you still have uh the 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 total wing nuts out there um like uh, who did i see this morning um oh shoot uh i'll have to come back to that but there's still you know still Got people the that are wing nuts we'll just on the look. extreme side yeah that are saying that hey this is this is really isn't a big deal but uh you know there's the the side that has always been calling for this as uh, a clear indicator of the need to move to to clean energy but then a big middle ground of people that were kind of sitting the fence and, and still pushing for, well, you know, we need to figure this one out, and then once we do, then we can get back to drilling because uh, oil is still an important part of our energy policy, blah, blah, blah. It's that, it's that middle section that you start to see uh, moving a bit, and uh, I think President Obama was in that middle section, and his speech in Pittsburgh uh, just a couple days ago was, was I think, a, a good indicator that he is beginning to move. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yes, on Tuesday, he said, I will make the case for a clean energy future wherever I can, and I will work with anyone to get this done, and we will get it done. So he's really stepping up to the plate there. Yep, absolutely. You know, I think uh, he also called out the the simple math that suggests that we're not going to drill our way out of our problem, saying that uh, we... We currently use 20% of the world's oil, but we have less than 2% of it. So without a major change in our energy policy, our dependence on oil means that we will continue to send billions of dollars to, uh, to other countries, including those that don't like us very much. So I think that's an important recognition as well, that you, know, you can mollify some of the people that are, that are slightly uh, on the other side of the issue in terms of wanting drilling by saying, look, 
you know, forget forget the environmental concerns because that's probably not what speaks to you. Uh, this becomes about uh, uh, our national security and and how we deal with energy independence in a in a realistic way. Right, and so it's not just a question for national security of closing or opening more offshore drilling. It's it's a bigger issue, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, you know, you. you you need to look at this in, in, in terms of what ener- America's appetite for energy is and how we deal with that. And the very first thing that we can do is say, all right, well, what do we do to reduce our own demand? Uh, what do we do to, uh, to lessen the obvious need to drill more? And, and uh, you know, about half of our consumption of oil in the U.S. is based upon transportation, and about three-quarters of that is simply on moving human beings around day to day. Uh, so if you know if you get a ten percent pickup in efficiency on half of the people in the United States, then you've already essentially doubled the amount of oil that you would have needed to, or, or cut in half the amount of oil that you would otherwise need to have in terms of world ratios. We have two percent of the world's. That would be a two percent decrease in, in what we do. So you know there there are there are obvious solutions out there before you even get to, to whether you need to drill more or not. And, uh, and then the clean energy piece comes in, which is, you know, if we're not going to have oil, where do we get our energy from? And there are a lot of great options on the table that just need to be brought to scale. That's a really accessible point, that if we could just, you know, reduce our personal consumption by 10%, it would have an enormous impact because there's so many things we can do that are like 10%. You know, it isn't like get rid of the car, it's just drive the car 10% less. Yeah, or you know, move from a car that gets 20 miles a gallon to one that gets 22. <laughs> it's not a big leap. Um, so yeah, and then there are other areas like uh, about 15% of our oil consumption is based on uh, 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 building, heating, and uh, plant uh, uh, energy, energy production and things like that where you can have uh, moves to natural gas, moves to solar that can have a big impact in those areas. So there are obvious conservation areas where we can hit and have a big impact. Yeah, and it's exciting, the, the courses that clean energy has been taking the last year, at least. Um, I heard from uh, Congressman Markey that uh, the amount of wind energy that was brought online in 2009 in the United States is the equivalent of 10 new Seabrook nuclear power plants. So that resonates very well here in Boston. Oh, no kidding. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's a great point. And then if you read, uh, there's a book called Earth the Sequel that was written by Fred Krupp, who's the, the head of EDF, and it's basically a survey of probably a, you know, a, about 10 of the most promising alternative energies being developed right now. And in all of these areas, he gets into how each of them could scale up into what capacity. And when you read that, you realize that, you know, you need to drive investment in these technologies, and then you'll be able to bring them to scale in, in a reasonable time. So, um, But, uh, you know, in, in the short term, Rob, a lot of this is, is really just kind of good arguments against what is a strong argument for drilling these days or what is seen as a strong argument, which is simply to say uh, that, uh, that we need this oil to keep powering the, the country, and we don't necessarily need it. We have alternatives, which is why... Yeah, we were heartened to see President Obama uh, continue a six-month ban on, on new deep water drilling and new drilling in new areas, and we would hope to see that become permanent. Right, and he's also t- t- has he taken some other steps to uh, 
to, to reduce some, some plans of exploration and stuff as a result of the uh, Gulf of Mexico leak? Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he canceled uh, the exploration off the coast of Alaska, and that was kind of a last-minute skate save because I believe it was Shell that was up there starting to send people up to, to begin that work. So uh, an 11th-hour shutdown of that exploration, uh, which is good, and then he canceled lease sales in the western Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Virginia, uh, which, you know, and uh, new areas to, to effectively spoil, if you will, and certainly that Virginia site had a lot of the East Coast uh, champions up in arms because of the damage that could be done uh, to lots of East Coast uh, beaches and, and, and estuaries if something were to go wrong there. Um, and then you've seen what's happened with uh, trying to break up the Minerals Management Service into three separate divisions that have a little bit more uh, 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 separation of duties so that you don't have conflicts of interest and perhaps you can shake up that culture as well. Yeah, it's amazing how we have to learn the hard way. You know, when Three Mile Island melted down, there was just the Atomic Energy Commission, and as a result of that accident, uh, Carter set up a commission headed by the president of Dartmouth uh, who was a nuclear engineer, and they came up with setting up the nuclear regulatory agency so that there would be a regulatory agency separate from the cash collecting agency. Um, uh, hopefully that's the direction that uh, Obama's going with um, minerals and management. Yeah, indeed. There's the, the, basically the, the enforcement group is now separate from uh, the, the permitting group. And uh, I have to look and see there's another, there, there's a third group, I forget which it was, but uh, so they, they they look to be divided up in the proper way. The, the question still becomes one of culture, and I think one of leadership and structure. And frankly, that's what I'm still concerned about not seeing. When you see that with the the six month moratorium, uh, there was no written policy on the emergency short term ban that went into play right after the spill, and there's been a lot of uh, kind of squirreliness about the interpretations of what this one means. So, for example, you're still seeing drilling in uh, within, I think, 600 feet of depth. Uh, some new drilling has begun. There is some uh, uncertainty about whether that was permitted or not. And, uh, again, I think if you read the wordings on uh, uneven the written interpretation now, it's still a little loose. Uh, so I think that's, that's a call for Salazar to really show some true leadership, really address the cultural deficiencies that he's, he's got in that agency, and make it uh, truly effective. That's right. He's going to have to prove to the American people that there's a good system that will will always, you know, protect us and, and watch out for stuff. And like you said, this, the people, the portion that collects the money bags, because uh, minerals and management is second only to the IRS for the amount of income it gets. Um, you know, this has to be proven to, to everyone's satisfaction that uh, these kinds of mistakes, and because it's just, it's just ridiculous to have the agency that's collecting the cash also be in charge of slowing down the you know the process of the cash flowing in again. <laughs> yeah, you, you wonder how their how their uh, how their salaries are determined, how they're evaluated on, on what happens. You can kind of guess at it based upon what you've seen happen. And you know the other uh, disturbing thing that needs to be addressed is it is still acceptable. Uh, to waive the environmental uh, uh, requirements that were waived for the Deepwater Horizon, even under the current moratorium, on the process for new permitting. So, uh, still some work to be done. Um, but uh, yeah, and that was because 
that it, you know putting in environmental regulations would slow down the fl- the flow of money into the government coffers. So, you know, the, this is why we have to have separate a regulatory agency that's separate from the money collecting agency. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, yeah, so uh, there is some hope, uh, and I, I think it's it's truly up in the air. And there certainly is still plenty of pressure. Uh, from the, the the group of members of Congress, uh, administration folks, and, and the general public to continue to press for more offshore drilling, but you know we think this is a chance to, to maybe pitch a battle and see if we can get the moratorium that existed up until 2008 to get it reestablished uh, and use this as the example for why there's no reason to go and open up new areas to this kind of, of risk. Okay, thanks, Mike. We'll be back with Mike Dunmeyer uh, after this break. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on how to become a host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back, and we're talking today about... Uh, no new drilling in the ocean. We're talking about clean energy and green jobs, and we're talking about a national ocean policy. With me is Mike Dunmeyer from Ocean Champions. Uh, Mike, earlier in the show, we were talking about uh, President Obama announcing in Pittsburgh on Tuesday, June 2nd, that, uh, quote, I will make the case for a clean energy future wherever I am, and I will work with anyone to get this done, and I will get it done. Uh, he's talking about more than the Gulf of Mexico here, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, uh, we've got our dependence on oil. Um, there's another fossil fuel out there that uh, people don't want to mention by name still because of uh, its support, and that's coal. Uh, and we simply have a need to, to move to renewable sources of energy for reasons that the Gulf uh, certainly brings to light, but they go far beyond that. We still need to talk about uh, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas emissions, and what that's doing to the planet's uh, climate and what it's doing to the, to the world's oceans in terms of acidification. So uh, as he starts talking to, towards moving to a clean energy future, talking about how do you start to, to develop uh, these energy sources, these renewable energy uh, sources that could replace some of those traditional fossil fuels. So how will this clean energy legislation tie to green jobs? Well, uh, the main thing it does is it first of all puts a cap on uh, greenhouse gas emissions and it mandates that you get to a 17% reduction in carbon pollution based upon 2005 levels by 2020. 42% by 2030 and 83% by 2050. Uh, it then allows for uh, a limited cap-and-trade type framework where uh, people would be, would be issued credits uh, that would allow them to emit a certain amount of uh, greenhouse gases underneath of that cap, and then there would be more efficient groups that would be able to sell their excess uh, credits and, and uh, those that would be less efficient that would need to buy them up. Um, and uh, in so doing, that begins to level the playing field in terms of the cost of energy production between traditional fossil fuel-type energy and uh, these renewable energies. This is, you know, in many ways, Rob, it's, it's a simple uh, economic situation where once a company or once a good has been brought to scale, there are simply uh, incredible pricing efficiencies built into how that good can be produced relative to uh, startups that would compete against it. And that's, you know, what we have when you look at uh, solar or wind or wave energy, things like that. The cost to uh, generate a megawatt of energy through those means is right now just considerably greater than the cost to develop it via fossil fuels. But uh, the carbon cap and trade will begin to bring those, those costs in line and putting a price on carbon uh, also allows venture capitalists to be able to price their risk and understand the returns that they need to be able to get into this, this business. And there are billions of dollars of venture capital sitting on the sideline waiting for this appropriate pricing signal. And when it happens, then they're going to be able to get in the game and you're going to see the great engine of American innovation and ingenuity take over. And, you know, of all the thousands of possibilities that are out there, you know, there will be there will be a number that will succeed, thrive, and begin to scale. Uh, all of that growth feeds new energy jobs, drives the economy, and uh, allows the United States, I think, the opportunity to become the OPEC of the, the new energy generation or the new energy technology uh, in a way that we won't be able to if we don't pass this climate bill. Yes, I imagine that putting a price on carbon is a real game changer that, you know, with a price on it, industries can just step, step back and look at, you know, okay, we're going to have to make, a, make a, you know, make innovations and technological improvements not to, have to bear, not to have to carry those costs. You know, like with the General Electric uh, locomotive engine company in Erie, Pennsylvania, you know, where they were regulated to 
reduce their carbon emission. They didn't just put on catalytic converters. They retooled the whole engines. And now uh, China is buying thousands of engines from Erie, Pennsylvania, not only because they're cleaner, but because they're more reliable because they're so well-built than the other ones. Right. Uh, absolutely. And that and you, you make a good point there as well, which is as, as you think about the, the future of, of economic growth, it's not just about the, the, the nascent energy companies themselves. It's all the supporting industry in terms of component manufacture and, and you know, consulting and things like that that will spring up around uh, these growing companies that offer, again, more opportunity. Um, you know, for, for you and I and, and a lot of others, uh, the environmental impacts, uh, lessening the, the likelihood of cataclysmic global warming, um, uh, trying to reverse uh, what is happening with acidifying oceans and things like that is, is critically important as a part of this bill. But I think you could, again, you could put all that aside and just look at this in terms of how is America going to compete uh, you know, as we move forward in the 21st century uh, we don't have very much oil relative to the West, rest of the world, and, and those oil supplies are waning everywhere anyway. China is investing heavily in new energy technology. So, you know, do we want to have the same situation with China that we've had with the Middle East in terms of control of the, of the factors of energy production as we move forward? I don't think we do. <laughs> it's, it's in our best interest from a national security and an economic growth perspective to get behind these new energies and, and drive that growth. Yeah. And, you know, we, we hear my colleagues in the science fields, you know, go on about dicing, you know, is that an appropriate amount of reduction and is that enough and stuff. And yet when industry is given a price on something, like when there was the ozone hole in the atmosphere and we knew that it was being caused by certain chemicals, they didn't just slow down the chemicals. They just backed away from those chemicals and found a substitute. So it's possible that uh, once there's a price on carbon, it's in the industry's interest to back off, you know, wasteful carbon as fast as possible. And we just have no idea how, how quickly they can reduce their uh, footprints. Yeah, and that you know, um, I'll, I'll use a probably a really bad analogy here because it involves uh, carbon, but, but you know, it, it takes extreme pressure to make diamonds, right? Uh, and uh, and and oftentimes, uh, corporate America, uh, if allowed to operate under a similar set of rules for a long period of time, can become somewhat. Uh, lackadaisical about how they operate. If there's no pressure to evolve uh, and if everyone is competing in the same way, uh, then you won't have the leaps in terms of technological innovation. But the minute that you put extreme pressure in the situation, that's when greatness happens. And uh, you, know, you mentioned it with the, with, you know, the Clean Air Act and things like that where there's heavy lobbying leading up to that of you know, companies saying we'll never be able to do that, we'll never be able to meet these, these new guidelines. But you know, sure enough, they they met them and actually beat them ahead of schedule. You know, there are, there are tons of very, very smart, motivated people working in these companies, and, you know, the competitive pressure to thrive in a new environment works. And uh, you, know, you, you, you put together the, the parameters that will produce the outcome you want for the environment and the economy, and I believe in America, and I believe it can happen here. So, uh, you know, let's... Let's set up the game so that it works the right way and produces the right outcomes, and I think we'll get there. That's great. It's, it's really important that this clean energy um, push that Obama is doing, you know, not be perceived as 
as government regulations interfering with business. And yeah, that's an issue. That's uh, that's sometimes a. a an unfortunate argument to have to make, and you see it all the time, that, you know, okay, well, Obama wants to dictate to you what kind of car you can drive, you know, by making it more expensive for you to drive a Hummer, you know, or he wants to dictate well, to you how you, you heat your home, um, when this is simply, you know, as, an, or, as a country, we've got to evolve how we, how we deal with our energy consumption or we're going to be in a world of hurt. I'll just throw this out as an aside. It's yeah. off topic, but I had to mention it. So it was Don Young from Alaska who was the last wingnut to say, you know, hey, what's happening in the Gulf right now is, is not an environmental disaster. Stuff like this is going on constantly in the oceans, and all the critters will be fine. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I'm not sure, Rob, but I think that Congressman Young gets some uh, campaign contributions from big oil, I think. Well, he's Alaskan. They get paid <laughs> oil money every year. <laughs> and uh but uh it's it you know it's good for Obama to step up like this because he's acting before all the pictures are coming into the news. They're just coming into the news like yesterday of the um pelicans and uh different uh wildlife. Mostly the birds and turtles are getting all the attention, I think because they're the first ones to suffer. The birds have to uh the oil reduces their insulation so they have problems um but uh it's just now hitting the hitting the news hitting the shores and hitting the wildlife it seems yeah and if uh you know i know the washington post has been running at the boston globe has them uh and if you find you look on the web you'll find them it's it's heartbreaking and you know the ones i've seen have been uh have been pelicans and, and other birds and in some of the pictures you can't even tell it's a bird um uh, the animal's just so decimated by oil and you know, the, the in terms of real impact, what's happening out in the middle of the Gulf is is far worse than that. But these are the images that I think tend to galvanize the public, and it really does make it personal and and uh, demonstrate just how bad and toxic this stuff really is. So uh, you know, it's very sad. But hopefully, again, this these images drive change and drive motivation to make some of these things happen. The ban and the climate bill. Yeah, people are responding. They're going out in boats, they're going out in spotter planes, and they're finding that the oil sheen on the water prevents them from seeing the turtles underneath, that it's very difficult to um, to find the animals. And even though they're trying hard, that you know, there's, that inevitably we're going to see a lot of wash-up of deceased animals, I guess. Yeah, and that, you know, again, that to, to make a side point, this brings up the need for people to go down and help on shore. Um, and, and our Facebook account and our Twitter account, we've posted several times, uh, you know, which organizations you can contact if you're near there or interested in going down there to help. Uh, and we'll, we'll continue to repost that, that information to help people out. We being oceanchampions.org. Yes, thank you so much, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Got to know where to go. Uh, you can also uh, go to oceanriver.org, uh, where you'll can read about our initiatives to promote uh, the president to uh, have no new drilling in the ocean and for clean energy and green jobs and for national ocean policy. Uh, but it's yeah. <laughs> And uh, uh, we may be coming short on time for this segment, but perhaps we can talk about the lead of next segment, which is really kind of what are the chances for this climate bill right now, um, you know, given, the, given the circumstances, because uh, for a while it looked like 
expanded offshore drilling was going to be the, the nugget, the giveaway to try and bring the fence sitters and people on the right over uh, to be able to get enough votes to pass it. Now that becomes politically untenable. What does that mean for the bill? Yeah, that will be a good thing to talk about when we come back after this break. And then later we'll, we'll go to talk about the need for a national ocean policy. So we'll be right back after this break with Mike Dunmire. Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. At the Green Talk Network, our experts want to hear your voice. Do you have a question or comment for our hosts? Call us toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about no new drilling in the ocean, clean energy and green jobs, and the need for a national ocean policy. And with me is Mike Dunmire from OceanChampions.org, and I'm Rob Moyer from OceanRiver.org. And we're um, – help me out, Mike. You, where were we going when we came back after the break? Well, we have so many things to talk about. We were talking about uh, uh, climate legislation and how important it was, not just environmentally but also as an economic driver. Um, but we didn't get to chant – get the chance to talk much about the prospects for the bill. Um, and uh, as many people following the issue uh, knew that uh, as, uh, as Carrie Lieberman and uh, at one point uh, our friend down from South Carolina, uh, Senator Graham, were putting this together, it was pretty well known that a sweetener 
to try to get the 60 votes that would be necessary to pass it in the Senate was going to be some form of expanded offshore drilling. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, the spill happened. And uh, that forced some 11th-hour changes in the bill prior to its being introduced, so they were a little bit more uh, conservative in, in, in the way that they offered up some expanded offshore drilling, but it was there nonetheless, and they gave some veto power to what they were calling affected states. Uh, if a state wanted to move forward with offshore drilling, the affected states could, in, could in effect, block them. But it, it was still there. Um, now, with that piece in there and with the, the, the rising public opinion against offshore drilling as a result of the BP Gulf oil spill, the question becomes, you know, what is the impact on the chance of success for the for the climate bill? Um, it was pretty it was pretty dicey to begin with. We you know we we didn't have uh, high hopes for it passing. We certainly wanted it to, um, and it's been a little unclear whether the oil spill helps the bill or hurts it. On the one hand, as we've been talking about, you know, it really puts a great point on the need to develop Plan B. You know, if, if oil can lead to this, and if we don't want to drill for oil, we've still got to have a way to, to produce new energy. The climate bill will do that for us, and there's, I think, some growing support that way. But there are still so many uh, senators in the pro-drilling camp uh, that would kind of need that expanded drilling piece to get behind it, but that, now that doesn't really get them much political juice, so does the bill just kind of sit? And as uh, the senators return from, uh, from the recess and, and begin going back to work uh, on the Hill next week, we'll, we'll kind of see how it's shaping up. And uh, Ocean Champions will be bouncing around the Hill pretty heavily, trying to kind of suss out what the, what the real opportunities are for climate, as well as a number of the other bills uh, that are bouncing around in response to the oil spill. So just something to put out there and for people to pay attention to. And again, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but I encourage everyone to to write and call their senator and tell them how much you want a climate bill. They need to hear from the voting public. Yes, and if you want help in writing those letters uh, and commenting, uh, you can can see uh, letter templates uh, at oceanchampions.org and soon at ocean and also at oceanriver.org. Um, so you can join with either group, uh, and we'll help deliver your words to the, to President Obama, basically. To Obama and, and to the Senate. Uh, both, both of those uh, political figures need to be tweaked a little bit and pushed, <laughs> so we need to do that. Yeah, at, at, when you write at, ocean, at oceanriver.org, uh, we uh, gather all the signatures and pe- encourage people to write comments, and then we organize them by state and town so that the different politicians can see who in their neighborhoods are expressing concern about this issue. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, um, shall, we, uh, shall we talk oceans now and national ocean policy? Because I want to make sure we, we, uh, we got to that as well. So um, we we really need a uh, a comprehensive and well coordinated uh, responsible stewardship approach to the ocean. We do indeed, and uh, if folks are not real familiar with with what this concerns, um, right now today and historically there are 140 different laws that have some impact on how the oceans are used. And those laws are, are uh, you know, span the, the, the jurisdictions 
of 20 different federal agencies that all have a piece in managing some aspect of the ocean. And right now there's no uh, overriding philosophy for how those 20 different agencies should, uh, should act and how those 140 different laws should be interpreted. Um, and so what the, what the national ocean policy, the concept of the national ocean policy gets to is it says, look, you've got to align the work uh, on oceans of all those different agencies around uh, a stewardship uh, 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 ideology that says that we need to uh, protect, maintain, and restore the health of our oceans, that uh, they provide so much in terms of food, energy, uh, shipping lanes, production of oxygen, as well as recreation, and you know just their, their need to be protected long term that these needs and how we use them over time need to be balanced and, uh, and, and managed for the long term with a stewardship view. And uh, that's what a national ocean policy would hopefully set us on the path to doing, and uh, that's what we're hoping uh, we will see from President Obama very soon. And there's been some groundwork looking into this. Uh, you know, the Pew Ocean Commission went around, and there was a U.S. Ocean Commission. And doesn't this kind of come out of some of that groundwork? Absolutely. Um, and, and those two commissions were almost a, a decade, actually they were a decade ago, weren't they, Rob? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, one uh, private and the other governmental uh, commissioned it at slightly different times. Both came up with very similar findings, which was that ocean governance needed to be reformed and that you needed an overarching policy that stated what how you were going to how you're going to manage your oceans. And uh, there's a lot of other work in those, uh, in those, those uh, bodies of, uh, of literature, those studies, but this would be a great first start. Uh, and uh, since that time, you know, there have been independent follow-ups, there's been some work on the Hill, and then uh, very recently, I guess it was last July, I think it was, uh, President Obama formed an interagency task force to go out and uh, look at what a national ocean policy would be, why you would need it, and what it could do, and also uh, to look at this concept of comprehensive marine spatial planning, which is, in effect, uh, urban planning for the ocean, uh, and to report back to him with their recommendations for how we should move forward. Now, the, the task force went out, did their work. They uh, held extensive public hearings. They took a lot of public feedback through the web. They consulted with a lot of different special interest user groups of the ocean, including the environmental community, as well as you know, the true extraction uh, uses as well. And they put together a set of recommendations uh, that you know, I, I think largely look at, you know, kind of uh, reflect on what the Pew and Oceans Commission's reports suggested that we should do. And uh, it is now in President Obama's court to act on these recommendations, and uh, he has a number of vehicles through which he could establish a national ocean policy, the best, and what we would hope for would be an executive order uh, that would then, you know, uh, like I say, align the work of these 20 federal agencies around the common philosophy. Uh, and to give a, a great example of what that would do, uh, Rob, we've talked about this very recently. Uh, you had um, Commerce Secretary Locke acting under the precautionary principle and saying that we're not going to have commercial fishing in the Arctic because we don't understand the ecosystem. We don't know the impacts that we could have by, uh, by going out and heavily extracting fish up there, so we're going to sit tight until we understand it better. Great move. 
But at the same time, Interior Secretary Salazar, this was some months ago, said, no, no, we're going to open up the Arctic to, to new drilling. And, uh, you know, that was part of what, uh, what had Shell heading up there and getting just about ready to start until President Obama said, no, no, we're, we're, taking, a, we're taking a pause on that. So in, in, you have the situation where one agency says, nope, we've got to leave this pristine area alone until we know it better, and another says, nope, go and take everything you can for all it's worth. If you had a national ocean policy, you wouldn't make those conflicting decisions. And, in fact, you would have, uh, through this concept of marine spatial planning, uh, a better sense of how you could, what you could co-locate, what you could do in each area based upon uh, uh, the need not to have a adverse impact on some other uh, uh, extractive use of the area or to harm some particular sensitive habitat that might be there. Uh, so high hopes for this to happen soon. You really need this overarching uh, structure because, it, you know, Salazar and the, um, the other agency are totally talking about what their missions tell them to do, and it's in conflict. And we see that right here in, uh, in Cape Cod, where the national seashore is the National Park Service, and, um, and to the south is Monomoy Point, Monomoy, which is a uh, bunch of sandbars off the western end of Nantucket, and that's a national wildlife refuge. And one of them uses geographic coordinates to map out the land, their their property, and the other uses you know 20 feet above the high tide mark. <laughs> and so the uh, sands are shifting. And now we're getting overlap of the two areas, and the Park Service is all for letting clamors come in. And so the Park Service is overlapping with, with National Wildlife Refuge areas. And so the refuge says no taking from a refuge, and the park says public access to a refuge. <laughs> so we, we, you know, and each of them are doing their job, but uh, you need an overarching agency that says, okay, you know, this is how we're going to sort this one out. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yes, and, and, and you know, there, there's going to be, uh, once this is done, if it is done, there, there's a, a difficult challenge uh, structurally of how you actually have some kind of command and control that works along these different agencies. But even just having the leadership statement out there will do a lot to get people looking at things with a common frame of mind uh, and, and interpreting things consistently so that you don't have situations like what you just described or what I was talking about up in Alaska. You can't do it with command and control. They, they did it with the Boston Harbor Islands because it was the first national park that didn't own any land. They had to coordinate all the landowners. And we're doing it now in Massachusetts with a mass ocean plan where these kind of the process of setting up your big ocean policy gets the, gets the different people in the different silos talking to each other so they know ahead of time that the issues and they can resolve them on a case-by-case basis, you know, without being, you know, regulated and having clear procedures. We'll be right back after this break. Learn how to become a part of the solution, not the problem. Participate in the discussion by calling 1-888-346-9141. That's toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Learn how to become a part of the solution, not the problem. Join in the discussion by calling 1-888-346-9141. That's toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Rob Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, and We've been talking about no new drilling in the ocean and clean energy and the need for green jobs, as well as the need for an ocean policy. And to advance any one, and certainly all of them, requires going into electoral politics, and elections do make a difference. Mike, what is uh, Ocean Champions doing on the Hill these days along those lines? Well, um, we are uh, working with our champions uh, to try and advance to really you know, try and make something good happen out of this horrible tragedy in the Gulf and use the, the, the changing tide of public opinion to move forward on, on, some, uh, on some promising uh, cleaner ocean fronts. Uh, and uh, I think we've talked about this before, Rob, but uh, Ocean Champions will um, endorse and support and help get elected uh, candidates that we believe will be strong ocean advocates in Congress. And right now across the Senate and the House, we have 33 members of Congress that are are our endorsed champions. And uh, uh, if you look at this group, uh, they have had an inordinately large share of leadership on on the particular congressional responses to what's happening in the Gulf right now. So, you know, we talked in the beginning of the show, Rob, about, you know, the desire to have a permanent ban uh, on new offshore drilling reestablished. Well, uh, after the spill came out, several of our champions introduced or were, were early co-signers on, on, uh, on bans in specific areas. So uh, Senators Lautenberg uh, and Mikulski, and Senator Mikulski is a, is a recent uh, endorsement of ours, uh, uh, signed on to a letter to block Virginia's offshore drilling plans. Uh, Senator Boxer and Senator Cantwell uh, joined some other 
West Coast centers to uh, introduce a bill that was a permanent ban on drilling off the coasts of California, Washington, and Oregon. Um, Congressman Baird and Congressman Farr introduced similar legislation in the House. Um, Congresswoman Pingree uh, has introduced legislation to bar drilling off of Maine and closer to your neck of the woods, Rob. Congresswoman Castor has introduced a bill that would permanently ban uh, offshore drilling off Florida's Gulf Coast and the Straits of Florida. And then our good friend, Mr. Frank Pallone, introduced a bill to permanently ban any new drilling anywhere. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> so you got to like somebody who just goes for the gold right away. Um, and then there were some other bills that came out. So Lautenberg and Nelson in the Senate and uh, Holt and Boyd in the House introduced what's uh, the, the no big oil bailout, the the bills to raise the liability cap that oil uh, companies would bear for things like the BP oil spill from the puny $75 million where it exists today to $10 billion and up. Um, Senator Whitehouse and Congresswoman Capps were the two who spearheaded the effort that got Obama to establish an independent commission to investigate this bill. Uh, and, of course, Congressman Markey, back in your neck of the woods, uh, has been just an unbelievably powerful gadfly with the, with the oil industry in terms of getting a lot more transparency, in terms of uh, holding hearings and really brutalizing these guys and bringing to, to public light um, you know, all the, the weaknesses and disregard for uh, ocean safety that have, that have been out there. Um, so these things only happen uh, if you are electing the people who feel this way and who will passionately take the lead on issues like this and try to uh, set ourselves up so that we really do create a healthy ocean future and, and have a uh, uh, really a far lower likelihood of, of something like this ever happening again. So, uh, as I mentioned, Rob, we're going to be bouncing around the hill next week, uh, meeting with a lot of these folks and trying to understand which of all of these bills and, and uh, some other opportunities that probably don't yet exist uh, tangibly uh, have the best chance of getting done in the short term and, and seeing what we can do to work with our champions and, and make that happen. Uh, and then I think that you know we will continue to press on the climate bill, as will many others. Um, and uh, in that light, I did want to mention uh, that we just came out with our, our last two, or, or our next two endorsements, I should say. We have quite a few more to do. Um, but we just endorsed uh, two senators for re-election, Senator Leahy, uh, a Democrat from Vermont, and Senator Mikulski, as I mentioned, a Democrat from Maryland. And uh, this is another important point that we're trying to make, which is, when uh, you're trying to build political power, and Ocean Champions is trying very hard to build political power for the oceans, it's not enough to just try to create a framework that helps you pass good ocean bills. Uh, you also have to get those ocean bills appropriated uh, at the levels where they have a chance of being successful, which is why it's very important uh, to make sure that you've got appropriators who are Ocean Champions, who have a belief in, uh, in ocean health as, as an important principle. And both Senators Leahy and Mikulski have very personal connections to the ocean and have been consistent supporters uh, through the role on the Appropriations Committee of good ocean conservation projects. Um, uh, Senator Leahy, uh, not many people may know this, but he is an avid, avid scuba diver. Uh, and it's his love of the ocean that he has is, he is built through diving that has caused him to be the lead supporter for the Coral Triangle Initiative, which is, which is directing funds to preserve very sensitive habitat 
uh, out in the, in the Indonesian area of the Pacific. Um, he's also done a lot for Lake Champlain and has been a huge, huge voice against BP in the, in the latest oil spill. Senator Mikulski grew up uh, outside of Baltimore and saw how the Chesapeake Bay was fundamental to so many people's lives there and how iconic it is to, to the state. And so she has been uh, a strong, strong protector of the bay, which is a critical estuary and nursery for a lot of fisheries, uh, throughout her career. And uh, Senator Mikulski is the chair of the CJS subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee, which holds NOAA's budget, and Senator uh, Leahy serves on that subcommittee as well. So very important to, to support these people who are good ocean people and also in tremendously important positions to be able to do good things for the ocean. Yes. And if we don't, it's, all, it's easier for, um, for partisan politics to start eating away at their, at their positions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for uh, uh, for every Senator Leahy or Senator Mikulski that's out there, you know, you've got uh, you know you've got a Don Young <laughs> on, on on the House side saying crazy stuff like uh, the spill is not a natural uh, is not an environmental disaster. It's it's an everyday occurrence. That's right. um, you know, and and uh, you've got uh, a Richard Pombo, who uh, we were a big part of helping to defeat in 2006. Richard Pombo is probably the worst, most toxic guy for oceans ever when he was the chair of the Natural Resources Committee. He's running again now after a four-year absence, and we're again working to, to stop him. Um, this is somebody who wanted to drill every single place he could possibly drill well before uh, you know, we got to this point and would still do it today. You got to make sure that you beat these guys, uh, and you got to make sure that the folks like Leahy and Mikulski uh, get in there. And the more of them we have, the better off we are. And uh, the other thing to be to be sure of is that uh, big oil, and big electric, and big coal, and and, and all those uh, interests that tend to align against ocean health are backing the people like Don Young. They're backing the Richard Pombos. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a pitched battle, and uh, we need the ocean-loving community to pay attention to it, to vote the oceans, and to pay attention to who's really doing, doing good for the thing that they care so much about. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, this is why I'm very grateful you could be on the program, Mike Dunmire, because, you know, um, Ocean Champions was the first, um, ocean, was the first group to go into um, Pombo's district and start, you know, bringing to everyone's, his own constituency's attention that he was for drilling off the coast of California. Uh, and that kind of prepared the way for the larger groups to come in before the election that led to his defeat. How is that? Uh, so now the uh, former chair who wanted to close the chair resources, who wanted to close down the whole environmental protection, the whole um, endangered species program, uh, is now running for office in a different district nearby in California. Uh, what's that race looking like? Well, so he's running in, in the 19th district, which happens to be where Yosemite National Park is located. And, of course, the other thing about Mr. Pombo is he wanted to sell off our national park, so we think it's kind of ironic that he would run uh, in, in Yosemite's district. But um, he was also uh, dogged by corruption charges, and he appears to still be wounded by the campaign that we and, and, and others in the environmental community waged against him uh, in 2006 in terms of his, uh, his ethics. And uh, so far in the Republican primary, uh, which will be held next week, June 8th, 
he looks like he's running third. Uh, there are two Republicans ahead of him. So um, we've been following this race very closely and engaging in it. Um, and uh, we are hopeful that uh, that Mr. Pombo is going to go home and, and hopefully somebody will, that this will kind of put a stake in his political career and, and, and we'll be done with him. Uh, but we will be watching closely on June 8th. If people want to keep abreast with these political unfoldings, uh, they should uh, visit your website, right, oceanchampions.org? You should check out oceanchampions.org. Uh, they should find us on Facebook, uh, Ocean Champions there, and they should follow us on Twitter. It's at Ocean Champions. Uh, we put out a lot of information and certainly uh, heavy updates on what's happening in these critical primaries as it's happening and uh, you know, when we get the hopeful news that Mr. Pombo is going home for good, uh, we'll certainly be chatting that up next week. Yeah, and whenever there's a change in the political landscape, you guys are the first ones that I hear about reporting what's going on. And it's, this is a great resource you provide to give us a clue with what's happening under the surface of politics in Washington. Uh, thanks so much. Well, we, uh, we, we try to give people the insights that we're getting because the more people who are engaged and uh, educated, the, the better off we'll be. I was thinking, I used to watch West Wing, you know, the TV program, and now we can just read Ocean Champions, and it's the same, oh, it's for real. But it is that exciting. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everyone also is aware that David Wilmot is a, is a spitting image for Rob Lowe. Yes. And, but, but unlike Lowe, he's a Ph.D. oceanographer, which is pretty cool. <laughs> hey. Exactly. Mike Dunmire, I want to thank you for uh, spending this time with us uh, and uh, helping us to advance uh, no new drilling in the ocean, clean energy, green policy, and a national ocean policy. Until next time, thank you for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.